All right, well, if you have been with us uh, for the last couple of weeks, we are in um, a sermon series leading up to Easter on emotions. And really what we've been looking at, if you remember, is what the Bible has to say about all of our emotions. The Bible speaks to all of our emotions. What does it say? What, have we, what does it mean? And what have we been exploring? And the big idea, there's, there's basically six ideas in kind of two different categories. And they're going to follow up on your uh, screen here. They're going to show up on the screen. It goes like this. Number one, remember, the Bible speaks to all emotions. The Bible speaks to all emotions, specifically the Psalms. If you read through the Psalms, happiness, sadness, fear, anger, shame, pain, guilt, depression, all these things, they're, they're mentioned in the Psalms. Jesus cries. Jesus laughs. Jesus experiences all the emotions, right? And if that's true, then it's normal, we learned. It's normal for humans to experience all the emotions, all of them. Sadness, depression, anger, guilt, happiness, shame, fear, all these things Humans, it's natural and normal for them to experience. And finally, those two things are true. Then what the Psalms teach us in particular is that we can worship God in every emotion. That means you can be frustrated driving on I-4. You can want to give someone the Christian middle finger, which is the thumbs up, right? Like, nice job, buddy, or sister, or whatever. I'm an equal opportunity offender when it comes to people driving poorly on the road, right? You're mad. You're like, I-4, Jesus, I can worship you in my frustration in the car right now, right? The Bible gives us this beautiful roadmap to engage and worship God no matter what our emotion is, okay? So those are the big three truths and therefore at least these three implications. Number one, our emotions are a gauge, not a guide. Our emotions are a gauge. They're like the dashboard of our life telling us, hey, something's going on in you, okay? The Bible, then, is left to be our guide on things. If the emotions are engaged, the Bible becomes our guide and teaches us how we can worship God in all things. And finally, knowing Jesus is our ultimate goal. That's what we looked at week one. Remember week two, we were in the chapel. We talked about uh, this idea of pain, how pain is probably one of the most dominant emotions. And Britt told her story, if you were here. Last week, uh, we looked at fearfulness or fear. Um, And we had David Branch come tell his story. This week, uh, I want us to look at the one that we probably, if you're honest, we spend the most time thinking about, the most time interacting with, and that's the emotion called happiness, okay, happiness. And here's the thing. As I thought about talking through happiness, I thought, oh my goodness, what am I gonna say about happiness? Like, I think everybody in here is like, happiness? Yeah, I like happiness. You don't need to spend any time at all talking about happiness. And actually, I think happiness might be the thing I need to spend the most time talking about because I think we're basically confused when it comes to happiness relative to scripture, okay? And here's what I mean. Um, a few weeks ago, I was reading my daughter a story, and it was like a fairy tale story, right? Like Beauty and the Beast or Princess and the Pea or whatever, right? It's one of these stories where like, there's a princess, and she like uses her cunning and guile and ends up landing a man who happens to be a prince, right? Never do these princesses end up marrying like, you know, like a bum on a couch or anything like that. It's like, oh, yeah, see that guy hasn't shaven in four weeks, right? Okay, yeah, let's see if I can win his favor, right? It's always like the charming, beautiful prince, okay? And she ends up with that. And um, right at the very end, we turn on the last page. My daughter's learning to read so she can pick up words. She can read sentences and that kind of thing. We turn to the last page, and I'm like, okay, read. And here's what was on the last page. Uh, this is what they said. And they lived happily ever after. Okay, girl and a guy get married, and they lived happily ever after. Now think about the implication of that statement. A girl finds her husband, and now she's happy forever, all the time. She's just happy for the rest of her life, all the time. 
and I read this to my daughter, and just, I'm one of these very realistic parents, like I tell my daughter when there's BS going on, and I was like, Grace, listen, this honey is just frankly not true. This book is lying to you, okay? Because let's just think about this, Grace. At some point, she met the mother-in-law, right? Like, mother-in-law's got involved. And listen, I love my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law passed away. Rest in peace. I love my mother-in-law. My wife loves my mom, right? I love mother-in-laws. But ma'am, mother, mother-in-laws can be a strain on marriage, right? This is why you do premarital counseling. There's a whole session we do on how to create boundaries with parents, right? Because if you think about this, you get married, and you're like, cool, this is awesome. We can have these Thanksgiving plans. No, 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 no. Your mom has Thanksgiving plans for you, and her mom has Thanksgiving plans for her. And if you go, no, we're staying in Orlando this year, your parents are like, uh-uh. No, you're coming to where we live to do turkey stuff, right? And you're like, no, we're a new family. And there's, there's strain there. There is no way uh, in God's universe these people got married and just were happy forever, right? At some point, they probably loved each other a lot and got pregnant and had kids, right? As is the natural flow of things. And like babies came in the world and that baby probably pooped at some point. There was nothing happy about that, right? Baby got sick. There was nothing happy about that. That's certainly a frightful thing, right? Baby grows up. Maybe he goes through those awkward teenage years and is rebellious, right? Probably nothing happy about that. There were clearly some unhappy times going on in that family's life, okay? So this is a lie. But I want you to think about this. We are told from the beginning as we read these stories, as we watch Disney films, as we read the books, that they lived happily ever after. And it sets forth this idea in our brains. When you get married, you'll be happy forever. If you don't get married, you're not gonna be happy forever. You're gonna be sad forever. And our culture, our literature teaches us this. And I thought about that as I was thinking through the Bible and emotions. I was like, man, this is an, this is an outstanding claim. And I just thought, where else in society do we see this message reinforced? And I'm, I was shocked when I looked around. Check out this next slide here, okay? In our very political theory, the very core of our constitutional identity. Here's what the Declaration of Independence says. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are, repeat if you know it, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Oh my goodness, did you catch that in the Constitution? At the core of our identity as American citizens is this idea that we are to pursue happiness as an end of our life, okay? If you're an American, and these colors don't run, boy, right? If you're a good American, right, you should be pursuing happiness, okay? I don't know why I talk like a Texan whenever I think about America. Maybe that's because Texas, if you guys don't know, in 1845, Texas allowed the United States to join it because Texas was a country, and it was like, come on, U.S., we'll take care of you, right? No, as an American, we are to pursue happiness as an end. Wow, that, we're to pursue an emotion as our end? Why are we not to pursue sadness or anger? This, this seems a little troubling at this point. I kept looking and I kept researching and I found this advertisement, okay? Look at this advertisement here, Nutella, spread the happy, okay? In our advertising, the goal of advertising, if any of you are in advertising classes, is to associate your product with happiness. If you will consume this product, you will be happy. If you don't consume this product, you're going to be miserable in life, right? Which I believe is exclusively true to Nutella because it may be God's gift to us from heaven, right? Nutella is amazing, right? I love Nutella, okay? Someone is testifying over there. I like that. So, so just, just follow with me here. In our literature that we learn from an early age, in our political theory, in our advertising, we are taught 
to pursue happiness at all costs. And even in our very music, we are taught this. This is a song that came out not too long ago uh, by your boy Pharrell called Happy. Clap along if you know that happiness is the truth. That happiness has now been elevated to the layer of truth. It is true that you should be happy, right? In everything in life, you're happy, right? So we're told at every facet of our society that we should be pursuing happiness, pursuing happiness, pursuing happiness, pursuing happiness. And I have to ask this question here today for us and go to scripture to find some answers. Does the Bible tell us to pursue happiness? Does does the Christian worldview hold that the goal of life is to pursue happiness? Or does the Bible prescribe something else as an end in our life? I want us to look at the Bible and see what it has to say on this and to bring some clarification to our very confused culture relative to this emotion called happiness. But before I do, I want to invite you to pray with me. Jesus, uh, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your model. And as we look in this letter to the Hebrews, I pray that you would teach us and help us to understand and wrap our brains around this idea of happiness as an emotion and the pursuit of that which we need in life. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 12. Now the author of Hebrews, we don't know, uh, has written already a number of things in the first 11 chapters, and he's going to turn now and start to make application. We know this because he begins with therefore, and anytime therefore is in the Bible, you got to find out what it's there for. It's connecting some previous thoughts. He's just in chapter 11, said, here are our heroes of the faith. By faith, all of these people live this way, and they got more of Jesus. And so he's saying, therefore, in light of all of this, and here's what he writes, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, meaning all these people we've just talked about, these saints who have gone before us. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He's using a race metaphor here as a metaphor for life. In, in light of all these people, these saints have gone before us who have followed Jesus and they've left us testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us therefore cast aside everything that holds us back and let's run the race of life with endurance. Some of you guys are runners here, right? And you know this, it's, it's hard running a 5K, it's hard running a 10K, it's hard running a marathon, but that's what life is. It's long and it's arduous and we've gotta endure. So that's what he's saying here. He says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the, there's that word there. What is that word? Joy. For the joy set before him, because of the joy in his life, motivated by joy that's set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in the very first part of verse three, the author says this, consider him. In other words, consider his life. Here's Jesus. Jesus does everything motivated by joy. He considers the joy before him and then moves forward. There's, if you read any of the Gospels in the, in the New Testament, um, there's always this scene where um, some disciple will come up to Jesus and say, what must I do to have a good life? What is it I really need? And Jesus always says this, if anyone would follow after me, he must take up his cross, lay down his life, and follow after me, Right? He must deny himself, take up his cross, follow after me. If you follow after me, I'll make you fishers of men. This is 
typically Jesus' formula that he will give to people. You want a good life? You want a life that's, that's full and rich and full of meaning and the one that everybody's designed for? Then here's what it is. You're going to take up your cross and you're going to follow after me. Well, why did Jesus live such a life where he took up a cross and pursued the enduring life? Well, it's because there was joy that was set before him. He's motivated by joy. So I think right here, we, as we're considering the life of Jesus, we need to juxtapose two ideas. And it's the two ideas I want us to just consider for the remainder of our time. The first one is this. It's that happiness, and if you have a bulletin, you can fill this in. Happiness is an emotion to be felt. Happiness is an emotion to be felt, but joy is an end to be pursued. Happiness is an emotion, just like all the other emotions we've talked about. Joy, however, is the end that is to be pursued, the joy before him. Jesus sees this joy running like a pace runner in his life, and that's the end that he's pursuing. And specifically what he's talking about is the joy he has in God. He is satisfied in who God is. He receives joy from God. He rejoices in God in worship, and he just pursues him. And Jesus doesn't seem to have any care in the world for this emotion called happiness. Jesus experiences happiness, but he's not motivated by that. Instead, he's motivated by joy. And there's a reason for this. I want to give you some definitions to help you understand why happiness is an emotion, but joy is the end we should pursue. Happiness, defined, is a circumstantial feeling of elation. Again, happiness is an emotion that's felt. It's a feeling of elation. And you guys, I don't have to tell you what happiness is, right? It's Christmas Day, you open a present, and you're like, like it's what I wanted, and there's this like, ah! right or it's a birthday and someone gives you a gift or like you know a new single gets dropped on itunes or whatever right and you're just you're uh, there's this moment of elation right a circumstantial moment it happens uh in a in a set season of time it's not all the time it's circumstantial and the circumstance leads to a feeling it's a feeling of elation that's happiness that's what happiness is right joy on the other hand is a disposition of content satisfaction in God. Joy is a disposition. It's a, it's a position of your soul. It's, it's a soul that is kind of positioned such that it just says, I am content in who God is. I am, I'm content in my satisfaction of who God is. Which makes sense why Jesus would say, I'm going to be motivated in my life not by this fleeting emotion. I'm going to be motivated in my life by this joy, this disposition of content, satisfaction in who God is. I'm going to pursue that. I'm going to pursue that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about why it is that I don't think happiness is what the Bible is talking about. And I think instead joy is what the Bible is talking about in terms of the end, right? Happiness is an emotion. Joy is the end for which we should live. And I ask the question, why is it that we shouldn't consider happiness in that way? Why is it maybe we should consider joy? Well, I want to take this in two parts. The first thing I want to do is I want to address why it isn't or why it is that we shouldn't consider happiness as a healthy and helpful into our lives as our culture might tell us. Why? And again, I love the Constitution. It's great. Um, it's a fine document. 
I love America, okay? It's a great nation, right? It's not that I hate other nations, but I'm happy with America. I'm not besmirching our nation. I'm not trying to kick our founding fathers in the faces in their graves, okay? I wanna be very clear. I'm not anti-politics or anti-country, but what I am is a believer in Christ whose highest standard is not the Constitution, it's the Bible. And so at the end of my day, I have to live my life according to what Scripture says. We just talked about this. I will build my life on the love of Christ, okay? I'm gonna build my life on the word of God and I wanna know what the word of God has to say about this situation, okay? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give us permission to critique the constitution and to critique culture in light of what the Bible says. And so I'm just addressing this question, if happiness is not the end that we should pursue, why not? And I wanna, wanna talk about that. And to talk about that, I want to uh, play a song for you. Uh, DJ Colton over here is gonna mix it up for us. I, I just... If you've heard this song before, I just want you to, there's a lyric video here, just watch, and I just want you to let this wash over you, and I'll give you some explanation. So, DJ Colton, Colton, spin it up. There you go. know that song? Show of hands. Okay. Let me ask you a question. How many of you knew that song before Maroon 5 came out with moves like Jagger, right? How many of you knew that song only after Maroon 5 came out with moves like Jagger, right? You got, I, God bless you all, right? You are truly the chosen generation that you appreciate good music. Thank you about that. I was really concerned there for a moment that without like DDR and some of these other things you guys would know. Yeah, so this is the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. Here's how the song goes. You know, it's pretty simple. I can't get no satisfaction, but I try. I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction, right? You're like, oh, okay, cool. So trying has nothing to do with the satisfaction you're hoping to achieve. Like at some point you would think maybe I shouldn't try. Like if you can't get no satisfaction, stop trying, right? It seems to be quite obvious, but maybe they're British and there's a, you know, language conversion problem. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on there, right? There's just something going on. So let's talk about what's going on uh, in that song here. And let me just give you some cultural dating. This song's written by Mick Jagger and a couple other people, right? In the Rolling Stones. Song is coming out in the middle of the 60s. You guys know what's going on in America and in the UK in the 60s? It's the cultural revolution, right? It's the cultural revolution, okay? Drugs, sex, rock and roll, money, possessions, that's what we're pursuing. It's the height or the beginning of the height of hedonism. Hedonism is the, the worldview that just says pursue pleasure at all costs. It's the thing to be achieved. It's the end for which we should, we should pursue. In fact, if I want to be happy, I'm going to have to experience pleasures, drugs, sex, rock and roll, money, possessions. I'm going to pursue all of these things. I'm going to, I'm going to enjoy them. I'm going to experience them. And if I do, perhaps I'll be happy all the time, right? That's what's going on in the 60s. And no one is in the mix more in the drug, sex, rock and roll, money, possessions party than Mick Jagger, right? Mick Jagger is in the throes of it. And ju just to help you guys understand, right, I, I just did this Google search. I was like, man, I mean, I, I don't want to be too crude, but I'm, I'm fairly certain that Mick Jagger had a lot of, what's the kind way of putting this, relationships, okay? 
I don't want to go too far, any, any further on what kind of relationships are the word, but we'll just say they're romantic relationships, right? And so I just did this Google search, which I feel terrible about because I was on like company server, right? I'm in like a church internet, and I'm like, how many wives has Mick Jagger had, right? I just was like curious. And like a graphic came up, like it's so talked about that someone has gone through the trouble of a graphic. So I want you to look at this picture here. This is all of Mick Jagger's wives or romantic partners with whom he's had a child, eight of them, right? Right here. Look, Mick has done very well in the game of dating, right? From a very pagan standpoint, right? He has had a child in virtually every decade, okay? Mick has been involved romantically in, in the experiences of pleasure in every decade since the 60s. The 60s, Mick was enjoying drugs, sex, and rock and roll, right? In the 70s, Mick was enjoying drugs, sex, rock and roll. In the 80s, Mick was enjoying yuppie drugs, sex, and rock and roll, right? In the 90s, he's very angry and angsty about the drugs, sex, and rock and roll that he's experienced. In the, in the early 2000s, he's chilling with John Mayer, right? And very particular types of drugs and sex and rock and roll, right? This is Mick's life. So if there's, and by the way, Mick's net worth at this point is in the hundreds of millions. So by this point in the story, Mick, who is one of the first leaders of the hedonism movement, who has been having sex for a long time and producing babies, who has lots of money, who has lots of possessions, who's tried lots of drugs. This is the guy who should, in that whole cultural milieu, come out of this and go, listen, I've pursued drug, sex, rock and roll, money, and possessions, and it's great, right? It's so great. I do it over and over and over again. I look at my bank account, and I'm just like, this is amazing, right? We should expect someone who's involved in all of that to just be honest about how great it is. But what's Mick do? He says, I can't get satisfaction, even though I try. I've tried everything over and over and over and over and over again in all kinds of decades, and I still can't get no satisfaction. You would think at some point he would be like, I found it, right? Okay, Keith, when we headline next week uh, at Coachella, um, we should maybe change the words to I can't get no satisfaction. It should be like, I get all kinds of satisfaction. Guys, I'm here to tell you, like with my moves like Jagger, I get lots of satisfaction. But no, he still plays this song and he's in his 70s and he tells you over and over and over again, I can't get satisfaction even though I try. So what's going on there, right? Why would he be so prophetically honest about this situation in life? Well, let's explain it here. Let's see if I can explain it both biblically and then I wanna explain it using sociological terms. Um, in Hebrews, in chapter 11, right before we get to where we are, the author writes this. Check this out. He says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the, get this, fleeting pleasures of sin. Well, that's a very interesting phrase. Why would he talk about the fleeting pleasures of sin? Here's what, here's what the author of Hebrews is saying, he's saying Moses understood that he could not get no satisfaction even though he tried. If he was gonna pursue sin, if he was gonna pursue happiness as an end in his life, apart from Christ, he was gonna have no satisfaction even though he tried, okay? So the Bible's honest about this. Hey, this is reality. You pursue happiness as an end, you're not gonna get no satisfaction even though you try. Now, that's what the Bible says, but I want to take you to something really interesting I find fascinating. Again, I'm a nerd, so I'm risking something here, but maybe if you're a nerd here, you get this. And I want to talk to you uh, about a, a principle from economics called the law of diminishing marginal utility. Okay, who likes the law of diminishing marginal utility and just like gets down graphing this? Anybody? Anybody in here? Shout out. Oh, oh of course. 
Yeah, Osvaldo, who's like an economics major, he's like, yeah, this is my jam. Talk about this more. Supply and demand curve, yeah, right? The only thing that's cooler about that is Osvaldo does it in Espanol, right? So, but he's really smart, so he can do that. All right, so law of diminishing marginal utility. Here's what it says. Um, I receive pleasure, some unit of pleasure, from consuming any good or service in the economy. So uh, I consume one unit of some type of good, and I go, oh, it's a 10. But the more I consume it, the second time I consume it, it's an 8, and then it's a 6, and then it's a 4, and then it's a 3, then it's a 2, then it's a 1. And if I consume an additional unit, each additional unit I consume, it now diminishes to a point where it crosses over a threshold. So you see that little black line there? It crosses over, and then I receive negative pleasure from it, which is to say it makes me want to throw up, Right? This is the law of diminishing marginal utility, and everything in the known universe falls victim. The law of diminishing marginal utility, or in our terms, the law of diminishing satisfaction, or the law of diminishing happiness. And just to illustrate that, I, I want to I just, who, who loves chocolate chip cookies? Who loves chocolate chip cookies? Who would want to eat them on stage right now? Who would want to? Okay, hold on. Justin, you have to sing later. So, okay, hold on. I, I got to, this, this could get gross. Who would still want to eat them on stage? Josh. Josh, Yahweh saves. This is you, buddy. This has all you. Come on up. Let's welcome Josh to the stage. Come sit down here. Oh, yeah. If someone could grab a trash can, this is going to get bad. So go ahead. Right here. Right here. So I want you to eat this chocolate chip cookie, and I want you to tell me how you would rate it in, in terms of pleasure. This is a Cooper cookie. Shout out to Cooper for all these cookies. Go ahead and eat it. Okay. So you eat the whole thing, right? Yeah, I want you to eat the whole thing. We might want to get this man a cup of water, too, just in case, okay? So, on it, thanks. Okay, so how would you rate this? Hold on, I'm going to, sorry, Dombek, I want everyone to capture this goodness right here. It's on. Okay, how would you rate it? What, what, on a scale of 0 to 10, what would you say? A 10. It's a 10. Cooper? Cooper. You're, it's a 10. Okay. We have an additional cookie. I would like you to eat this now. Okay. The concern has hit him. Yeah, okay. We have to eat the whole thing. Whole thing. Go ahead, put it down. Morgan's got you some water if you need to, if you're parched. Okay, sorry, we don't have any milk for you or for Amy. No milk. Okay. Yeah, Amy loved that joke. She's the only one who got that. Okay, I want to know, how would you rate this cookie now? A 10. Oh, it's a 10. Maybe it doesn't work. Okay, keep going. Another cookie, please. Yep. Whoa, wait, but why would you say really? Oh, because I don't know how much cookies I'm going to eat. Oh, so you're saying potentially that you don't have an ever-increasing hunger for them. Okay. No, I, mean, I do. But, okay, eat, eat another one. Here we go. Okay. Yeah, okay. So we're at three cookies now. Uh-huh. We're getting saturated. The stomach's getting full. <laughs> Okay, okay, another cookie? Another one? Yeah. Whole thing, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. And for those of you who are listening on the podcast later, Josh is um, 
I would say he's waffling, but he's eating cookies, so I don't know if that's the appropriate term, but he's, he's slowing down a little bit, okay? Okay, so it's okay if you say no, but would you like another cookie? Okay. <laughs> We're just going to see. We might have to, we might have to cut through this on the podcast, so, okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're six right now, but I've got uh, 17 more in here. So, yep, yep. I just want to see where you're going to go. Okay. Oh. Okay. Okay. He's hitting the mother load for safety. I'm, I'm not going to put him through this, but I'm going to let you take this back to your seat. I think you've proven the point. Can everyone give Josh a round of applause here? And if you didn't see, uh, Alec brought out the, the, the batch of like 200 cookies here. Okay, you guys saw this, right? As much as he loves cookies, as much as he rates them, he's giving cookies away right now on the way back. He, he cannot, in this sitting, eat all of those cookies. Why? Because at some point, your stomach expands, and it starts to hit this point where it's negative. This is, this is the point, right? You ever heard this phrase before when you get really sick? They'll say, that person just tossed his cookies. That's what they're talking about. You've reached a point of diminishing marginal utility. And this is what the Hebrews author is talking about, the fleeting pleasures of sin. Everything you do from a sin standpoint, it's good the first time. The second time, you're like, eh. The third time, you're like, uh. And then you're slowly below that line. And now sin has you hooked. And you're like, I've got, I've got this bad habit. And I can't get out of it. And I can't get away from it. Yeah, because the law of diminishing marginal utility is in effect. Everything in the universe falls victim to the law of diminishing marginal utility. This is the fleeting pleasures of happiness. If you pursue happiness, this emotion, if you pursue it, it will eventually let you down. And like Mick Jagger, you will say, I cannot get no satisfaction even though I try. So compared to this, uh, I want you to notice something, okay? I just want to make sure I say this statement out loud. Our culture, it's going to be up on the screen. Our culture teaches us to pursue happiness as something that should occur all of the time. All of the time, right? They were happily ever after. However, if happiness is an emotion, then like any other emotion, we should experience it occasionally, not all the time. Okay? So think about this. You may be here today under the assumption and under the impression that you should just be happy all the time. And if you're not happy all the time, something's wrong with you. But wait a second. Hold on for a second. I just need to ask this question. If happiness is like any other emotion, then it should fit the following formula. If someone is sad all of the time, would we be like, yeah, you're sad and depressed. Awesome. Go listen to Coldplay. Not late Coldplay, but early Coldplay. And just enjoy your life being depressed, right? No, we would say, that person is unhealthy. We need to really help this person out. If someone was sad all the time, that's a problem. That's unhealthy. They need to go maybe see some counseling or meet with a mentor and work through some of that stuff. Similarly, if someone was fearful all the time, all the time, they're just afraid to get out of the house. They're afraid to get in their car. They're afraid of every little thing. All the time, we would say, hey, there's something unhealthy about that. If someone was angry all the time, and they're just like, all the time, they're never, right? Okay, we would say there's something wrong with that. So why then would we see someone who is happy all the time and go, 
That's the standard. That's the ideal I should live for happily ever after. This is clearly okay in the way we should live our lives. No, you should not be happy all the time. I want you to imagine a scenario where you're at a funeral and some guy's just sitting there like, <laughs> in the grave over there. That's awesome. Woo, I'm texting and Instagramming about that right now. Right? You'd be like, what a creepo, right? Like someone in there would be like, I'm getting angry all the time now and I'm about to go be Hulk and just like punch that person, right? There'd be something wrong about that, right? Or imagine you're in like some sad movie and like the characters all die, like the end of Rogue One, if you haven't seen it, sorry, spoiler alert, right? Sorry for those of you, have, the, the two of you who haven't seen Rogue One, right? Everybody dies. Um, anyway, so you get to the end, everyone's dead in Rogue One and that guy's just like, ha, 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 this is the best Star Wars movie ever, Right? You'd be like, that person's a sicko. What's going on, right? You'd be calling people in a psychiatric ward to try to get people like to come pick this person up, right? Inpatient facility. No, being happy all the time is not a good thing. Happiness is something that should be occasional. And therefore, if that's the case, then we've got to let ourselves off the hook if we're not happy all the time. If you wake up tomorrow and you're not happy, that's okay. You're normal, right? If you wake up tomorrow and you're just kind of whatever, don't, don't pursue happiness. Don't go like, oh, I need to go try to make myself happy. What kind of pleasure can I get into to make myself? No, no, no. You're, you're okay, right? Happiness is a sometimes thing. It's not an all the time thing. We tell our daughter this and our kids this all the time with, when it comes to like cookies and desserts. No, no. Desserts, they're a sometimes thing. Not an all the time thing. Happiness, sadness, grief, anger, depression, frustration, fear. These are a sometimes thing. It's not an all the time thing, okay? It's not an all the time thing. Therefore, this is why the gospel is such good news. If you have Bibles, you can turn to this or you can write this down. It'll be on your screen. It's in John 6, 35. Jesus says this, especially in light of this idea of the law of diminishing marginal utility, especially in light of the idea that we cannot be satisfied, the fact that maybe our culture misleads us a little bit in this idea of happy ever after, Jesus says something really tremendous when he speaks about himself. Here's what he says. He said to them, this audience, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now think about that. Shall not hunger and shall never thirst, okay? In other words, the claim that Jesus makes is he's the only thing that does not fall victim to the law of diminishing marginal utility. Jesus just stays constant. He provides the same layer of satisfaction forever. Why? Because he's God, <laughs> and he created the universe, and he created all of us to desire one thing. We're all made with this God-shaped hole, and the only thing that's going to satisfy us is Jesus. The only thing that's going to satisfy us is God. That's why Jesus, for the joy in God set before him, that's how he pursued life, because he knows that God's the only thing that's going to satisfy us the way we were meant to be satisfied. The reason Mick has never find, found satisfa uh, satisfaction over all these years of turning is because he hasn't turned to God. He hasn't turned to Jesus Christ. If he did, he would, he would discover that Jesus satisfies perfectly, right? There's a really interesting phrase here, and I'll just tell you the story about my wife. Um, in the Greek, sometimes uh, Greek will use, there's two firm, uh, forms of the word no. There's ou and there's me. And sometimes they'll put them together, and it's ume, and sometimes it's like uh, translated meganoita. And it's the strongest possible negation in the, Greek new in the Greek language, right? So just think about whatever country you're from or pocket of the world you're from and someone wants to use like very strong terms to say no. <laughs> uh, you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Like 
you know, just think about that. Just maybe the colorful language that might come out, maybe a little bit blue, right, in terms of that. Yeah, this is the language that Jesus is using. He's like, there is no expletive way you are ever going to be hungry again. If you eat of me, if you believe in Jesus, the good news, the gospel, is there is no expletive way you are ever going to thirst again. It is never going to diminish, which is why Jesus says our goal as believers, that the Christian worldview is not to pursue happiness, which is fleeting, but it's to pursue joy in God, which is forever and always satisfying. To kind of sell this story home, I want to invite Alec to come up here and share a little bit of his story here just to make this point. So would you guys welcome Alec Brockell to the stage? I'm going to take Josh's vomit table over here and just, thanks. Josh is the second thing that never falls victim to the law of diminishing marginal utility. So there we go. Well, Alec. His, his stomach at least. His stomach at least, that's right. Um, Alec, tell us a little bit about you. Talk about you, you we've all listened to this story. Talk about how this intersects with your story and your life. Sure thing, Doug. So for those of you guys who don't know me, I'm Alec. I work here. Um, You're a director of our Valencia ministry. I'm the director of our Valencia ministry. So shout out Valencia ministry. Windermere and Hunters Creek. Como se dice shout out Valencia in Espanol? Arriba Valencia. (laughs) Okay. There we go. (laughs) Muy bien. Um, So I like to call it part of my testimony, this part of my testimony, my journey to joy. Um, It starts, what I discovered was it was actually three years ago, like this week. Oh, awesome. Like incredible. Um, But about three years ago, I was talking to a friend, um, and this person told me, I was trying to counsel them about something, and long story short, they told me, Alec, until you go through um, expletive, um, you won't be able to help anyone. And that night I went home, and in a a foolish, (laughs) and probably a wise, it turns out it was wise, but in a foolish manner at the time, I prayed, God, just help me go through something bad. Just make me go through something bad so I can help people. Um, not a week later, um, the next Tuesday, um, my parents separated. Um, which my par- I lived in the Dominican Republic. I was a missionary kid. So my parents are missionaries living in a third world country. And they, they, my mom just walks out. The next day, Wednesday, um, I move out of my childhood home. Thursday, say goodbye to all of my church friends. Friday... Say goodbye to all of my school friends. Saturday morning, 7 a.m., I took the SAT, which I did well on. Nice job. Thank you. Sunday, my girlfriend broke up with me. And Monday, at like noon, three years ago, I flew back to Maryland, where, where I was from originally, with nothing. Like a backpack and like enough underwear for a week. That was it. And... It was my lowest point, and I'll, and, I'll t- and I'll be honest about that. There definitely wasn't the pursuit of happiness going on in my life. Um, it was very early cold play, if I can say it that way. Yeah, nice. Um, and it was a rough period. And there's this, there's a defining moment for me. Um, I remember like it was yesterday. I'm sitting, I'm staying with my uncle. I'm sitting, he gave me this, they had this little room. Um, and I'm sitting in this little room by myself, away from everything I knew and held dear. Um, and I'm watching a sermon that changed my life. It's by Dr. John Piper. And um, 
Piper's preaching. May I read? I actually yeah. I pulled, I looked it up because he's preaching from one of my favorite Bible texts. It's Psalms chapter 16. It starts in verse 8. He says, the psalmist says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Well, Sheol is a fancy word for hell. Or let your holy one see corruption. And this is the, the big verse. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Dr. Piper made this really intense claim that he calls Christian hedonism, where he said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And I remember, I remember stopping, I was watching on YouTube, so I remember stopping and going, that, that's a serious claim. I need to think about that. And guys, what he went on to explain is that God's, our ultimate goal in life is to make Jesus famous on the earth. And God's ultimate plan for us is to give us fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And he said the only way that could ever be is if they're one and the same. If God's glory is directly tied to my joy. And guys, I remember sitting there, and I don't remember if I cried or if I just sat there or what happened. But how many of you have seen Inside Out, the movie? You know at the end of Inside Out when the marbles are rolling and there's this really intense scene and then the marble rolls out and it's blue and yellow? right? And the whole point is, that's healthy, right? It's healthy to experience uh, complexity of emotion. Well, I tell you, there was never such complexity of emotion as me sitting on that bed with my world torn apart and the greatest joy that I could have ever, I can't even describe it. And a lot of things happened in the next couple months. One of the things that happened was everyone wanted to give me advice, which is, I mean, advice is good, but some of the advice I gave me, someone told me to choose joy. How many have ever been told, hey, just choose joy, man. Just choose joy. I tell you, it doesn't really work yeah. when, <laughs> when you don't feel joy, right? And so I learned a couple things. One, joy isn't fabricated feelings, right? You can't choose joy because joy isn't something you just like, hey, Alec, you're going to be happy today. You're going to be just content and glad today. It doesn't work that way. Number two, I'd say I learned that joy isn't, quiet coldness. I grew up in like a, you know, trying to choose my words wisely. I grew up in a very legalistic religious system. And um, a lot of people just told me, Alec, you just need to just endure, right? And that's what, they were talking about joy. They were like, you know, God has joy for you. You just need to endure. And it just, that just didn't seem right to me. When you read passages like that, talk about pleasures forevermore, I was like, is am I all I'm called to just to be quiet and just to sit coldly and callously and just embrace horrible things without emotion? And I tell you, neither are the truth. That's just false joy. And if you're pursuing either of those, there's good news. The, new, the good news is that the gospel provides joy so much greater. 
Because the joy of the gospel, guys, is, is one that can sit with you through depression. The joy of the gospel is one that you can feel while you're, you're fearing for your life. And read the Psalms, and I think you'll see what I mean. But ever since then, and, you know, that wasn't, you know, that didn't, everything didn't change at that point. You know, my parents ended up getting a divorce, and life was hard, and life is hard sometimes. But I learned a valuable, a life-changing lesson that night. Um, it's something that I continue to pursue. And it's actually best said through a C.S. Lewis quote. I love C.S. Lewis. He says that he, he wrote an autobiography called Surprised by Joy. I recommend it. But this is what he says. He says, joy, he had found, was an unsatisfied desire that in itself was more desirable than any satisfaction. An unsatisfied longing, this search, this quest for God that brought him more satisfaction in his life than any of the satisfactions that Mick Jagger knows so well. Awesome. And that's, that's my journey. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, thanks for that. Uh, thank, let's thank Alec for his story. It was awesome. <clears throat> so in conclusion, as we get ready to sing a song and rejoice and worship God through um, some music and some prayer, uh, I just want to make sure I recapture this for us and just play up on what Alec said. In this life, you have an option, and that is to pursue an emotion called happiness. And some days you might have it, some days you may not, because it's fleeting, it's circumstantial. You can pursue circumstantial happiness, or you can pursue joy. And when you pursue joy, if the gospel is right, if the Christian Bible is right, when you pursue joy, you pursue contentment in God for who he is and for what he's done, then you can be joyful in sadness. You can be joyful in happiness. You can be joyful in fear. You can be joyful in panic. You can be joyful in anxiety. You can be joyful in depression. You can be joyful in anger and in shame. But even as you're like that ball that Alec talked about in Inside Out, these mixed emotions, even when you are content and joyful in all of those emotions, because you're content in who God is, you are attached the God who created the universe, who's the only one who's sovereign enough to pull you out of whatever emotional state you're in, into a place of peace and comfort and rest. And so, these are the two options I want to put before you. And as a pastor, I just want to echo C.S. Lewis and say this. Maybe not, not choose joy, but maybe pursue joy with all of your life, with everything you have, with all of your being, as best as you know how. And if you'll do that, if you'll pursue joy in Christ and God then I think you will experience Jesus to be true, that he will be the one who will satisfy you continuously and perfectly for the rest of your earthly life and on in to eternity.